0: PTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by BioX Systems. BioX Systems produces Exercise Pro Software, the ultimate solution for patient education and home programs, and Fitness Maker Software, helping clinics manage wellness programs. Both are affordable, comprehensive, and easy to use. For more information, visit www.bioexsystems.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel.
1: Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for January 2011. This month's research reports focus on stretch for people with contracture in neurological conditions, patient satisfaction with musculoskeletal physical therapy care, treatment of patients with subacromial shoulder pain, a locomotor training approach for chronic spinal cord injury, predictors of physical therapy service use in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, self reported recovery after acute lateral ankle sprain, clinical decision making of novice and experienced physical therapists balance assessment in individuals with Parkinson's disease, assessment of gait measures in people with Parkinson's disease, and the gender gap in publications by physical therapy faculty members. This month's case reports focus on boxing training for patients with Parkinson disease and robot-applied resistance during gait training for an individual with spinal cord injury. The January issue also features an editorial by PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick. First this month, Effectiveness of Stretch for the Treatment and Prevention of Contractures in People with Neurological Conditions, a Systematic Review by Owen Katalinich, Dr. Lisa Harvey, and Dr. Robert Herbert. This abstract is presented by Dave Courvoisier.
0: Contractures are a disabling complication of neurological conditions that are commonly managed with stretch. The purpose of this systematic review was to determine the effectiveness of stretch for the treatment and prevention of contractures. The review is part of a more detailed Cochrane review. Only the results of the studies that included patients with neurological conditions are reported here. The review included randomized controlled trials and controlled clinical trials of stretch applied for the purposes of treating or preventing contractures in people with neurological conditions. Two reviewers independently selected studies, extracted data, and assessed risk of bias. The primary outcome measures were joint mobility and quality of life. Secondary outcome measures were pain, spasticity, activity limitation, and participation restriction. Meta-analyses were conducted using random effects models. Twenty-five studies met the inclusion criteria. These studies provide moderate quality evidence that stretch has a small, immediate effect on joint mobility and high quality evidence that stretch has little or no short-term or long-term effects on joint mobility. There is little or no effect of stretch on pain, spasticity, and activity limitation. A limitation of this review is that no studies were retrieved that investigated the effects of stretch for longer than six months. Regular stretch does not produce clinically important changes in joint mobility, pain, spasticity, or activity limitation in people with neurological conditions.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Owen Katalinich is a physiotherapist in the Rehabilitation Studies Unit, Northern Clinical School, at the Sydney Medical School, University of Sydney, in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. This systematic review was done in partial fulfillment of the requirements for Mr. Katalinich's Master of Philosophy degree from the Sydney Medical School, University of Sydney. Next, Patient Satisfaction with Musculoskeletal Physical Therapy Care, a systematic review, by Dr. Julia Hush, Kirsten Cameron, and Dr. Martin Mackey.
0: Patient satisfaction is an important patient-centered health outcome. To date, No systematic review of the literature on patient satisfaction with musculoskeletal physical therapy care has been conducted. The purpose of this study was to systematically and critically review the literature to determine the degree of patient satisfaction with musculoskeletal physical therapy care and factors associated with satisfaction. The databases CINAHL, MEDLINE, and EBM Reviews were searched from inception to September 2009. Articles were included if the design was a clinical trial, observational study, survey, or qualitative study, patient satisfaction was evaluated, and the study related to the delivery of musculoskeletal physical therapy services conducted in an outpatient setting. The search located nearly 3,800 citations. Fifteen studies met the inclusion criteria. Two authors extracted patient satisfaction data and details of each study. A meta-analysis of patient satisfaction data from seven studies was conducted. The pooled estimate of patient satisfaction was 4.44 on a scale of 1 to 5, where 5 indicates high satisfaction and 1 indicates high dissatisfaction. Additional data were summarized in tables and critically appraised. This study had the following limitation. Non-respondent bias from individual studies may affect the accuracy and representativeness of these data. Patients are highly satisfied with musculoskeletal physical therapy care delivered across outpatient settings in Northern Europe, North America, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. The interpersonal attributes of the therapist and the process of care are key determinants of patient satisfaction. An unexpected finding was that treatment outcome was infrequently and inconsistently associated with patient satisfaction. Physical therapists can enhance the quality of patient-centered care by understanding and optimizing these determinants of patient satisfaction.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Julia Hush is Senior Lecturer, Discipline of Physiotherapy in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney in Lidcombe, New South Wales, Australia. Next. Supervised exercises compared with radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy for subacromial shoulder pain. One-year results of a single-blind randomized controlled trial. By Kaya Engabretsen, Dr. Margaret Grottel, Dr. Eric Bouts-Halter, Dr. Ole Marius Eckeberg, Dr. Niels Gunnar Yule, and Dr. Jens-Ivar Brocks.
0: Evidence from a recent randomized controlled trial indicated that supervised exercises were more effective than radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy for the treatment of subacromial shoulder pain in the short to medium term. Little knowledge exists about the long-term results of radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy for subacromial pain. The aim of this single-blind, randomized, controlled trial was to evaluate the results of radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy and supervised exercises provided to patients with subacromial shoulder pain after one year. The study was conducted in the Outpatient Clinic of the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department at Oslo University Hospital, Ullevål, Norway. 104 patients with subacromial shoulder pain lasting at least three months participated. Patients were randomly assigned to either a radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy group or a supervised exercise group. Each group consisted of 52 patients. The radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy intervention consisted of one session weekly for four to six weeks. The supervised exercise intervention consisted of two 45-minute sessions per week for up to 12 weeks. After one year, an intention-to-treat analysis showed no significant differences between the two groups for the primary outcome measure, the shoulder pain and disability index, or for pain, function, and medication use. Twenty-nine participants, or 60% in the supervised exercise group, versus 24 participants, or 52% in the radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy group, were categorized as clinically improved. Thirty-eight participants in the supervised exercise group were at work, compared with 30 participants in the radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy group. Fewer patients in the supervised exercise group had received additional treatments between 18 weeks and one year. The lack of a placebo control group, the lack of a cost-benefit analysis, and the small sample size were limitations of the study. No significant difference was found between the supervised exercise and the radial extracorporeal shockwave therapy groups at the one-year follow-up. More participants in the supervised exercise group had returned to work.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Kaya Engabretsen is research fellow and a Ph.D. student in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Oslo University Hospital, Ullevål in Oslo, Norway. Next, Influence of a Locomotor Training Approach on Walking Speed and Distance in People with Chronic Spinal Cord Injury, a Randomized Clinical Trial by Dr. Adele Field-Faute and Dr. Catherine E.
0: Roach. Impaired walking limits function after spinal cord injury, but training-related improvements are possible even in people with chronic motor-incomplete spinal cord injury. The objective of this single-blind, randomized clinical trial was to compare changes in walking speed and distance associated with four locomotor training approaches. The study was conducted in a rehabilitation research laboratory. The participants were 74 people with minimal walking function due to chronic spinal cord injury. The participants trained five days per week for 12 weeks with the following approaches treadmill-based training with manual assistance, treadmill-based training with stimulation, treadmill-based training with robotic assistance, and overground training with stimulation. Overground walking speed and distance were the primary outcome measures. In the 64 participants who completed the training, there were overall effects for speed and distance. For speed, there were no significant between-group differences. However, distance gains were greatest with overground training with stimulation. Effect sizes for speed and distance were largest with overground training with stimulation. Effect sizes for speed were the same for treadmill training with manual assistance and treadmill training with stimulation. There was no effect for treadmill training with robotic assistance. The effect size for distance was greater with treadmill training with stimulation than with treadmill training with manual assistance or treadmill training with robotic assistance for which there was no effect. 10 participants who improved with training were retested at least six months after training. Walking speed at this time was slower than that at the conclusion of training but remained faster than before training. This study had the following limitation. It is unknown whether the training dosage and the emphasis on training speed were optimal. Robotic training that requires active participation would likely yield different results. In people with chronic, motor-incomplete spinal cord injury, walking speed improved with both overground training and treadmill-based training. However, walking distance improved to a greater extent with overground training.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. This article also is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Michelle Basso and a discussion podcast with Dr. Fote and Dr. Basso, with moderator Dr. Andrea Behrman. Lead author Dr. Adele field Fote is principal investigator of the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis and is professor and associate chair for Ph.D. studies in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Miller School of Medicine, University of Miami, in Miami, Florida. Next, predictors of the use of physical therapy services among patients with rheumatoid arthritis by Dr. Mara Iverson, Ritu Chabaria, and Dr. Nancy Shattuck.
0: Although physical therapy is a proven and recommended intervention for managing rheumatoid arthritis, few studies have explored correlates of physical therapy service use among people with rheumatoid arthritis. The purposes of this cohort study were, one, to describe physical therapy use among people with rheumatoid arthritis, and, two, to identify biopsychosocial factors associated with physical therapy use. It was expected that use of physical therapy services would be lower than previously reported considering recent medical advancements, and that including contextual factors may lead to identification of new factors associated with physical therapy use. Of 1,032 patients prospectively recruited from a large hospital registry, 772 completed baseline and laboratory assessments, received a physical examination, and completed a one-year follow-up survey regarding physical therapy service use. Measures included demographics, disease duration, rheumatoid arthritis medications, self-efficacy, social support, function, and disease activity. Self-reported use of physical therapy was assessed at the one-year follow-up. A staged regression approach based on a theoretical model was used to select and enter variables into the regression to develop a parsimonious set of predictors. The patients were well-educated and had modestly high incomes, and most had health insurance. Approximately 15.3% of the patients used physical therapy services during the designated follow-up period. Using multivariable modeling, the most significant predictors of physical therapy service use were moderate to high disease activity, less than a college education, greater social networks, and being on disability. The limitations of this study were use of a convenience sample and the potential for misclassification of physical therapy service use. Patients with less than college education were less likely to receive physical therapy services. Those with more active disease, those who were on disability, and those who had greater social networks were more likely to receive physical therapy services. Lead author Dr. Mara Iverson
1: is professor and chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at Bouvet College of Health Sciences, Northeastern University, and is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Section of Clinical Sciences in the Division of Rheumatology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, both in Boston, Massachusetts. Next, Explanatory Variables for Adult Patients' Self-Reported Recovery After Acute Lateral Ankle Sprain by Rochir von Rain, Sten Willemsen, Dr. Ariane Verhagen, Dr. Bart Kuz, and Dr. Sita Birma-Zeinstra.
0: Longitudinal research on musculoskeletal disorders often makes use of a single measure of recovery, despite the large variation in reported recovery that exists. Patients with an acute ankle sprain often experience no pain or functional disability following treatment, yet report not being fully recovered, or vice versa. The purpose of this study was to find explanatory variables for reporting recovery by analyzing the extent to which different outcomes, such as pain intensity, were associated with recovery and how baseline scores of different variables influenced this association in adult patients after acute lateral ankle sprain. This was a cohort study based on data collected in a randomized controlled trial. 102 patients who incurred an acute ankle sprain were included. Recovery, pain intensity, giving way of the ankle, and ankle function score were assessed during the randomized controlled trial at baseline and at 4 weeks, 8 weeks, 3 months, and 12 months post-injury. Mean differences were calculated between baseline and follow-up. Associations were calculated using linear mixed models, and the influence of baseline scores on these associations was determined using linear regression with interaction. At four weeks, eight weeks, and three months, associations were found between recovery and the mean differences of pain during running on flat and rough surfaces. At eight weeks and three months, Associations were found between recovery and the mean difference of giving way of the ankle during walking on a rough surface. This study used data collected from a randomized controlled trial. Therefore, the study was limited to the outcomes measured in that trial, and some explanatory factors easily could have been missed. This study is the first to identify explanatory variables for reporting recovery in adults after ankle sprain. Pain intensity and giving way of the ankle measured during high ankle load activities make it easier to measure recovery and to generalize recovery in this population. Pain intensity and giving way of the ankle should be the primary outcome measures of interest. This study indicates the huge need to reach consensus about primary outcome measures for research in patients sustaining ankle sprains.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. This article also is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Julia Hush. Lead author Rogier van Rijn is a PhD student in the Department of General Practice at Erasmus MC University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. next factors that influence the clinical decision-making of novice and experienced physical therapists by dr susan flannery wainwright dr katherine shepherd dr lorinda Harmon, and dr james steffens
0: the depth and breadth of prior experience informs clinical decision-making in novice and experienced physical therapist clinicians the aims of this research were one to identify differences in clinical decision-making abilities and processes between novice and experienced physical therapist clinicians, and, two, to develop a model of the factors that influence clinical decision-making. Qualitative research methods and grounded theory were used to gain insight into the factors and experiences that inform clinical decision-making. Three participant pairs were purposefully selected from three inpatient rehabilitation settings. Each pair consisted of one novice physical therapist and one experienced physical therapist. Case summaries from each participant provided the basis for within-case and across-case analyses. The credibility of the results was established through checking of the case summaries by the participants, presentation of low-inference data, and triangulation across multiple data sources and within and across participant groups. The factors that influenced clinical decision-making were categorized as informative or directive. Novice participants relied more on informative factors, whereas experienced participants were more likely to rely on directive factors. An intermediate effect beyond novice practice was observed. The results of this study may be used by educators and employers to develop and structure learning experiences and mentoring opportunities for students and novice learners with the aim of facilitating the development of skills and abilities consistent with expert clinical decision-making.
1: Lead author Dr. Susan Wainwright is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Next, Functional Gait Assessment and Balance Evaluation System Test, Reliability, Validity, Sensitivity, and Specificity for Identifying Individuals with Parkinson Disease who Fall, by Abigail Letty, Dr. Beth Crowner, and Dr. Gammon Earhart.
0: Gait impairments, balance impairments, and falls are prevalent in individuals with Parkinson disease. Although the Berg Balance Scale can be considered the reference standard for the determination of fall risk, it has a noted ceiling effect. Development of ceiling-free measures that can assess balance and are good at discriminating fallers from non-fallers is needed. The purpose of this study was to compare the Functional Gait Assessment and the Balance Evaluation Systems Test with the Berg Balance Scale among individuals with Parkinson's disease and evaluate the test's reliability, validity, and discriminatory sensitivity and specificity for fallers versus non-fallers. This was an observational study of community-dwelling individuals with idiopathic Parkinson disease. The Berg Balance Scale Functional Gait Assessment and Balance Evaluation Systems test were administered to 80 individuals with Parkinson disease. Inter-rater reliability was assessed by three raters. Test-retest reliability was based on two tests of participants two weeks apart. Intraclass correlation coefficients were used to calculate reliability and Spearman correlation coefficients were used to assess validity. Cutoff points, sensitivity, and specificity were based on receiver operating characteristic plots. Test-retest reliability was 0.80 for the Berg Balance Scale 0.91 for the functional gait assessment and 0.88 for the balance evaluation systems test. Interrater reliability was greater than 0.93 for all three tests. The functional gait assessment and balance evaluation systems test were correlated with the Berg Balance Scale. Cutoff scores to identify fallers were 47 out of 56 for the Berg Balance Scale. 15 out of 30 for the functional gait assessment, and 69% for the balance evaluation systems test. The overall accuracy area under the curve was 0.79 for the Berg Balance Scale, 0.80 for the functional gait assessment, and 0.85 for the balance evaluation systems test. This study had the following limitation. Fall reports were retrospective. Both the Functional Gait Assessment and the Balance Evaluation Systems Test have reliability and validity for assessing balance in individuals with Parkinson's disease. The Balance Evaluation Systems Test is most sensitive for identifying fallers.
1: This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Abigail Letty is a DBT student in the Program in Physical Therapy at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Next. Minimal Detectable Change of the Timed Up-and-Go Test and the Dynamic Gait Index in People with Parkinson's Disease by Xiao Ling Huang, Dr. Chin-Ling She, Dr. Rui Mei Wu, Dr. Chun-Hui Tai, Dr. Chin-Shin Lin, and Professor Wen-Shan Liu.
0: The minimal detectable change is the smallest amount of difference in individual scores that represents true change, that is, beyond random measurement error. The minimal detectable change scores of the timed up-and-go test and the dynamic gait index in people with Parkinson's disease are largely unknown, limiting the interpretability of the change scores of both measures. The purpose of this prospective cohort study was to estimate the minimal detectable change scores of the timed up-and-go test and the dynamic gait index in people with Parkinson's disease. 72 participants were recruited from special clinics for movement disorders at a university hospital. Their mean age was 67.5 years, and 61% were men. All participants completed the timed up-and-go test and the dynamic gait index assessments twice, about 14 days apart. The minimal detectable change was calculated from the standard error of measurement, The minimal detectable change percentage was calculated as the minimal detectable change divided by the mean of all scores for the sample. Furthermore, the intra-class correlation coefficient was used to examine the reproducibility between testing sessions. The minimal detectable change and minimal detectable change percentage of the timed up-and-go test were 3.5 seconds and 29.8% respectively. The minimal detectable change and minimal detectable change percentage of the dynamic gate index were 2.9 points and 13.3% respectively. The test-retest reliability values for the timed up-and-go test and the dynamic gate index were high. The intraclass correlation coefficients were 0.80 and 0.84 respectively. This study had the following limitation. The study sample was a convenience sample, and the participants had mild to moderately severe Parkinson disease. The results showed that the timed up-and-go test and the dynamic gait index have generally acceptable random measurement error and test-retest reliability. These findings should help clinicians and researchers determine whether a change in an individual patient with Parkinson's disease is a true change.
1: Lead author Xiao Ling Huang is a lecturer in the School of Occupational Therapy in the College of Medicine at National Taiwan University and is Senior Occupational Therapist in the Division of Occupational Therapy of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the National Taiwan University Hospital, both in Taipei, Taiwan. Next, The Gender Gap in Peer-Reviewed Publications by Physical Therapy Faculty Members, A Productivity Puzzle, by Dr. Regina Kaufman and Dr. Julia Shevin.
0: Studies of peer-reviewed article publication by faculty in higher education show men publish more than women. Part of the difference in publishing appears to be attributable directly to gender. Gender differences in publishing productivity have not been explored in physical therapy. The purpose of this study was to explore effects of gender on peer-reviewed publication productivity in physical therapy. This was a cross-sectional study using survey methods. A survey was administered to a random sample of 881 physical therapy faculty members and 459 responses were used for analysis. Men were more likely than women to be married, have children, hold a Ph.D. degree, be tenured or on a tenure track, and hold the position of department chair. There was a significant difference in peer-reviewed publication rates between male and female respondents. Negative binomial regression models revealed that female gender was a negative predictor of peer-reviewed publication accounting for between 0.51 and 0.58 fewer articles per year for women than for men over the course of a career. Reasons for the gender differences are not clear. The study has the following limitation: Factors such as grant funding, laboratory resources, nature of collaborative relationships, values for different elements of the teaching research service triad, and ability to negotiate the academic culture were not captured by the model. The gender gap in peer-reviewed publishing productivity may have implications for individuals and the profession of physical therapy and should be subject to further exploration.
1: Lead author Dr. Regina Kaufman is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. Next, boxing training for patients with Parkinson's disease. A case series by Dr. Stephanie Coombs, Dr. M. Dyer-Deal, Dr. William Staples, Dr. Lindsay Kahn, Dr. Kendra Davis, Dr. Nicole Lewis, and Dr. Katie Shanneman.
0: A non-traditional form of exercise recently applied for patients with Parkinson's disease is boxing training. The primary purpose of this case series is to describe the effects of disease severity and duration of boxing training on changes in balance, mobility, and quality of life for patients with mild or moderate to severe Parkinson disease. The feasibility and safety of the boxing training program also were assessed. Six patients with idiopathic Parkinson disease attended 24 to 36 boxing training sessions for 12 weeks with the option of continuing the training for an additional 24 weeks. A seventh patient attended sessions for only four weeks. The 90-minute sessions included boxing drills and traditional stretching, strengthening, and endurance exercises. Outcomes were tested at the baseline and after 12 weeks, 24 weeks, and 36 weeks of boxing sessions. The outcome measures were the Functional Reach Test, the Berg Balance Scale, the Activities Specific Balance Confidence Scale, the Timed Up and Go Test, the Six-Minute Walk Test, Gait Speed, Cadence, Stride Length, Step Width, the Activities of Daily Living and Motor Examination Subscales of the Unified Parkinson Disease Rating Scale and the Parkinson Disease Quality of Life Scale. Six patients completed all phases of the case series, showed improvements on at least five of the 12 outcome measures over the baseline at the 12-week test and showed continued improvements at the 24- and 36-week tests. Patients with mild Parkinson disease typically showed improvements earlier than those with moderate to severe Parkinson disease. Despite the progressive nature of Parkinson disease, the patients in this case series showed short-term and long-term improvements in balance, gait, activities of daily living, and quality of life after the boxing training program. A longer duration of training was necessary for patients with moderate to severe Parkinson disease to show maximal training outcomes. The boxing training program was feasible and safe for these patients with Parkinson disease. A video providing an overview of the
1: Rocksteady Boxing Training Program accompanies this article online. Lead author Dr. Stephanie Coombs is assistant professor in the Krannert School of Physical Therapy at the University of Indianapolis in Indianapolis, Indiana. Last this month, Using Robotic Applied Resistance to Augment Bodyweight-Supported Treadmill Training in an Individual with Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury by Dr. Tanya Lamb, Catherine Paul, Dr. Andre Krasiokoff, and Dr. Janice Ng.
0: The efficacy of task-specific gait training for people with spinal cord injury is premised on evidence that the provision of gait-related afferent feedback is key for the recovery of stepping movements. Recent findings have shown that sensory feedback from flexor muscle afferents can facilitate flexor muscle activity during the swing phase of walking. This case report was undertaken to determine the feasibility of using robot-applied forces to resist leg movements during body-weight-supported treadmill training and to measure its effect on gait and other health-related outcomes. The patient described in this case report was a 43-year-old man with a T11 incomplete chronic spinal cord injury, He underwent 36 sessions of body-weight-supported treadmill training using a robotic gait orthosis to provide forces that resist hip and knee flexion. Tolerance to the training program was monitored using the Borg CR10 scale and heart rate and blood pressure changes during each training session. The following outcome measures were completed. 10-meter walk test, 6-minute walk test, modified Emory functional ambulation profile, activity-specific balance confidence scale, and Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. The kinematic parameters of gait, lower extremity muscle strength, lower limb girth, and tolerance to orthostatic stress were measured before and after the training program. The patient could tolerate the training, overground walking speed, Endurance and performance on all subtasks of the modified Emory functional ambulation profile improved and were accompanied by increased lower limb joint flexion and toe clearance during gait. The patient's ambulatory self-confidence and self-perceived performance in walking also improved. These findings suggest that this new approach to body weight-supported treadmill training is a feasible and potentially effective therapy for improving skilled overground walking performance.
1: Lead author Dr. Tanya Lam is assistant professor in the Human Locomotion Laboratory in the School of Human Kinetics at the University of British Columbia and is affiliated with the International Collaboration on Repair Discoveries, Blusson Spinal Cord Center, both in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.